Welcome to the Investment Turnaround. In this podcast series, Dr. Mariana Bosazan interviews world-renowned investors, scientists, and other personalities who share their solutions toward the sustainable transformation of our financial systems. President Emeritus of the Club of Rome, Ernst Ulrich von Weizsäcker, served as tenured professor and chair of several universities and institutes worldwide, including the UN Center for Science and Technology for Development and the UNEP International Resource Panel. He's the lead author of three reports of the Club of Rome, among them the latest report, Come On. He's also a former member of the German Bundestag. What made you become such a force for good in the world? What happened in your life? that put you on this path of serving humanity? Essentially, it was modesty. I mean, knowing <clears throat> that many things go wrong, then I thought at least my contribution should, should not be wrong. Yeah, but most people who come into this world, you know, we are all born as square one. Uh, and uh, so we go through various stages of development. And the last thing, um, you know, a teenager would be, or even a, a tween, is to be modest. How did you arrive at that modesty? What happened in your life? That... I don't know. I mean, uh, I had insatiable um, curiosity. I wanted to learn new things. Started with physics, then moved to biology, and then moved into politics and management, etc. I was university president, which is essentially a management uh, job. And then, of course, notice that the North-South divide um, was ultimately more important than the earlier East-West divide and was not so much ideological, but the North-South divide was more a matter of poverty versus wealth. And it was absolutely necessary in terms of justice, in terms of long-term living together in peace uh, to make sure that justice is observed and that greed is rather restricted. Although we seem to know from Adam Smith that selfishness can be good for the wealth of nations. Good enough. But at his time, the geographical reach of the market of the invisible hand was identical with the geographical reach of the law. And then greed and selfishness was fully embedded in existing law and therefore was not destructive. Today, however, the financial markets are global and the law remains essentially national. And that leads to a situation where the financial world can blackmail the lawmakers of each country to reduce social security, for instance, in order to increase uh, returns and investment on capital. And this ultimately is a self-destroying system. We need investors, if you wish, who care for what's happening with the money 20 years from now, 50 years from now. So, should not be destructive to climate or to biodiversity or to the other uh, basis of human life. Because animal life and plant life is the basis of human life. <laughs>
Which brings us to the topic of the main conversation, which is the Command book, which is the latest book that you and uh, Anders Wickmann, as co-presidents of the Call of Rome, uh, wrote, and uh, so, and which was launched last year, uh, together with the investment turnaround. Can you give us uh, the the top ten tenets of uh, of uh, of the book? What are the core messages? Well, I, I'd rather explain the very simple architecture of the book. Part one says, come on, don't tell me the current trends are sustainable. They are not. They are destructive. And the second part is, come on, don't stick to outdated philosophies. What was perhaps correct 200 years ago no longer is. So we have to develop some kind of a new enlightenment. And then the third part is, come on, join us on an exciting journey towards a sustainable world. And there you can do something as investor, as politician, as businessman, as consumer, as trader, etc. Everybody can some, do something that is a lot better and more sustainable than what you currently find. So this essentially is the tenet, this trias of uh, or this sequence from not sustainable to a deep, grounded, uh, new understanding of humankind and of the Enlightenment, if you wish. And then finally, pragmatic things, what you can do today. We then go into many details. For instance, I used to be a member of parliament when we initiated the German feed-in tariffs law in German Energiewende, which essentially brought about for the world a massive decentralization of energy provision, which is fantastic for underdeveloped countries. So they can have their energy from the village, not waiting for the big uh, centralized power uh, stations and then the big mains uh, connecting, etc. So. This is a great thing, and it was initiated by, uh, by us as politicians. And it was a great success story. So this is repeated, in a sense, in uh, Come On, also reflecting on opportunities that exist since we have this uh, decentralization. And similarly, we are talking about the circular economy. I mean, if humanity uh, is still growing and uh, the consumption levels are growing even faster and the resources of the world are shrinking. The best we have to do is reuse all those resources. That's the circular economy or the factor five story, a five-fold increase of resource productivity. This is technically available and making it also profitable. That is a political thing to make sure that primary raw materials become more expensive, not cheaper, more expensive, so that recycling becomes a good business. And the uh, technologies around it, like remanufacturing and better repair and all this. Uh, so uh, circular economy is a great thing. And investing in that can be very profitable 20 years from now, if you can secure that politics does the right thing. Or we are talking about the unfortunate deregulation wave of the financial markets over the last 30 years or so, which 
has led to some uh, persons, like eight persons of the world, have as much wealth as 50% of the poorer part of the world. This is scandalous, isn't it? I mean, <laughs> they may be rich, this I don't mind, but super rich to the extent of making other people poor is not good. So, re-regulating the financial markets so that those who do the right things, including the right investments, will profit while the villains will have much less profits, perhaps even losses. Okay, why not? After all, they are villains. <laughs> so, that's a big chapter, essentially drafted by my friend uh, Anders Wickmann, who is closer to the financial world than I am. And then we have an interesting idea. Uh, some people talk about global governance, which is a good thing. Of course, the United Nations wants that and uh, it's wonderful. But its political reach so far is very limited. And then we have a wonderful uh, colleague in the uh, book, uh, Gerhard Knies, unfortunately in the meantime, meantime deceased, um, he said each country should establish a cohabitation ministry with the specific goal of inventing and developing topics that make your own country better and richer and as many other countries as well. So. Not what Trump says, countries are always rivals against each other and are uh, full of joy if the other is losing. A very no, no. tribal view of the world. Yeah. That's really outdated, while this cohabitation philosophy means um, understanding that cooperation creates more added value and therefore makes both parties richer. And this is something uh, which I believe has to be developed at national levels. But then in the European Union, we have it already since 50 years, and that's a great achievement. Germany became richer by surrendering lots of sovereignty rights to the higher entity. And that was good for Germany. And the same for France and for, for the others. Everybody profited. Yeah, that is uh, sort of the... Um, uh, example for the potential working of the cohabitation idea. So the book is full of optimism, it shows what we can do, and then you, Mariana Bosesan, wrote a wonderful um, chapter on investment and what can be done better. Impact investing. And the impact investment, it's a great term, relatively new, and can help persuade the investment community that you can do better and at the same time become richer. Isn't that great? Yeah, we only need so little. We don't really need those riches because you can't eat, drink or breathe money. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so what um, you were talking about, about uh, the regulation, new re-regulation of uh, the financial market and um, how the politics need to begin to do the right thing. How can the politics uh, begin to do the right thing? We're currently uh, in living in a system that benefits for profit only um, market views. 
how, what can we do and how can we, can we pursue politicians and regulators to change yeah. that? There are various options. All of them can be come can come jointly. One of it is, of course, the Tobin tax. Um, we were learning that out of a thousand dollars whirling around the world in milliseconds, almost with the speed of light, only twenty dollars are being used for paying for goods and services and $980 are purely speculative, all in the service of increasing returns on investment. And that is bizarre, isn't it? Uh, so, reducing the benefits from this kind of crazy carousel uh, circus by putting a tiny tax on it so that business that only works in milliseconds will next time only work in seconds and then all of a sudden requires more brains, more understanding of the effects and not just the algorithms of maximizing uh, returns on investment. So that is one way of regulating. Another is obliging... Stop um, high-frequency trading or uh, change it in a way that it's not... Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Another um, entry point is resurrecting the required capital behind um, giving credits. When I was young it was some 30% obligatory. Now it's in the vicinity of 5% and in reality 3%. And that can be the cause of the next big financial crash. And this we don't want, do we? Meaning, um, we can force the beneficiaries of the credit institutions to do something against the big crush. This is a political intervention and it does not damage the uh, community of money uh, lending uh, or uh, diminish the uh, wealth of the nation, not at all. It's just good regulation. I'm not in a position to say if 6% or 10% or 20% are needed. This is more for the experts to calculate the risk, etc. So that is uh, important. And then an old slogan which I invented 30 years ago is prices should tell the ecological truth. Today they are swindling. They tell us a story of cheapness which is not realistic. I mean, there is a book uh, published under the name Cheaponomics in which they show that all the negative effects of the cheapness is being paid by posterity, by other people, or by the, the rest of the world. Meanwhile, it's a cheating kind of um, operation. This has to be overcome. 
Yeah, and how do we get the politicians or the regulators to really listen to us and what, in what way can we influence them? I mean, what is the Club of Rome doing, uh, for one? And then the other is, what can we as investors, entrepreneurs, economists have an impact? Um, the Club of Rome is not a financial institution. It's a think tank in a way, in a way. but it tries to analyze properly and then give advice to business and to governments. And in my view, as a former parliamentarian, you will forgive me, uh, my first addressee is a, polit a politician to understand what they are doing and just pleading, uh, pleasing uh, the people, uh, the populace, can be the wrong thing. I mean, modern populism is essentially a bloody stupid simplification of facts. You can just as well call it a lie. And this is not good. It's not good for um, our children and grandchildren. Okay, so the Club of Rome tries to analyze. And uh, we think, and that is part of our call for a new enlightenment, we need a much more balanced kind of concept for reality. Dogmatism, like communism, or Islamic dogmatism, or neoliberal dogmatism, can be very, very destructive, while a good balance is good. I mentioned Adam Smith. If the geographical reach of the market and the geographical reach of the law are identical, then they are in a healthy balance. And that is good for both. While if you have an unbalance, markets are strong and the public sector is weak, then you will see a destruction of public goods, of infrastructures, of education, of long-term thinking, etc. And this is bad for the world. So, a balance between short-term and long-term is needed, or between women, female virtues, and male virtues. That's also, a balance is the best. Or, uh, between religion and state, um, an Islamic state or a Christian state before Luther, it's a hor horror. But a state that... Um, is secular. A, totally secular, without any morale, without any ethics, without any religion, is also a disaster. So a balance between the two. Or between justice and incentives for good achievement. Both are necessary. It is the typical uh, controversy between the left wing in political parties and the right wing. The left wing says justice and the right wing says uh, incentives for um, a good achievement. Both are right. And uh, here is a difference between Western thinking and Asian thinking. In the West, if we hear about a quarrel between two parties, uh, then our typical reaction is, well, one is right and the other is wrong, and the search for truth consists in the one who is right beating the one who is wrong. This is our understanding, our concept of truth-finding. It's binary. <laughs> yeah, which is binary. While in Asia, if you show a typical Asian, Indian or Chinese or Japanese or so, 
exactly the same quarrel. Their first reaction is, of course they are both right. It, uh, the essence is the good balance. So we in the West would do good by learning from the East. I mean, the East can also learn from the West, no doubt, regarding democracy, human rights, and the, re and the rest. But nevertheless, uh, a balance, I believe, ought to become a major concept for the new civilization, which is meant to be good not only for the present generation, but also for future generations and for animals and plants. Yeah, which is um, at the foundation of um, aqua. Um, ah. This is honoring the truth in all there is. That's the motto, which yeah. is exactly what you just said. Yeah, that's absolutely fantastic. And I wish you, with Aqual, great success. Not only moral success, but also commercial success. Yeah, an integral success. Absolutely. Yeah, because, you know, we all need to pay our bills. Yeah. But we only need so much. We don't need, don't need that much money, you know. Um, papers um, with notable disease notables on them. That's yeah. uh, stupid. This brings us to the next topic, which is um, we are not as uh, Harari, um, Yuval Harari says, we not only have um, a nuclear threat, global nu nuclear threat, and global climate change threat, we also are threatened by the information technologies, the entire exponential yes. tech and uh, artificial intelligence and uh, all the new developments that are exponentially uh, catching up with us. What advice, what is your attitude toward us and what advice would you give us in to, to address, to open up to the threats that are coming our ways and uh, how can we begin as investors we do have an economist and uh, business people do have an influence on this what would be your advice what are the areas that we should be looking at to prevent you know well, privacy loss and others start with a sort of paradigm that developed 50 years ago or so that is the pollution disaster which took all countries, all industrialized countries by surprise. The Silent Spring kind of thing from Rachel Carson and then the Minamata disease in Japan and the hor horrible air quality in the Ruhr area in Germany, etc., etc. Pittsburgh was no better. So, what was the result of that? People began to understand that what we always need is technology assessment before introducing a massive new technology. And this was very good for steering progress a little more slowly, but at least in the right direction. Cleaner in the case of pollution. And that was wonderful. So I suggest dealing with artificial intelligence and the potential of computers beginning to dominate humanity to have a very solid technology assessment in the first place. Now I know in America people think um, technology assessment is something for the coward Europeans, while we Americans simply do it and uh, that makes us the heroes of the world. No, 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 no. This is extremely dangerous 
and it can uh, lead to huge collapses. So I believe the principle of um, precaution, that's the juridical term, and the necessary uh, technology assessment are important. In Cambridge, England, they have a wonderful institute called the Centre for the Study of Existential Risk. Of course, there is the nuclear war. Existential risk meaning something that can wipe out humanity. But also on their list is artificial intelligence. And climate change. <laughs> and climate change indeed. But also one technocratic answer to climate change, which is called geoengineering. It's equally hazardous. And new biological technologies, in particular gene drive. It's a horrendously dangerous technology. Of course, they introduce it with killing the insects carrying malaria. Okay, this sounds like benign, but what guarantee do you have that those infertility genes do not hop onto other species, including potentially one day humans. The holistic impact of any yeah. action. So, um, this Center for the Study of uh, Existential Risk is, I think, uh, an institution to listen to. And for the Club of Rome, that is uh, very important. In our new book, uh, Come On, we uh, explicitly quote them without going into much details. But this is, I think, a very important part of modern civilization to really look at the consequences of certain innovations. Um, I mean, 10 years ago, everybody was talking about innovation, which was a benign and tame work. Nowadays, everybody is talking about disruption. Everything has to be disruptive. Uh, I mean, the uh, international company HP, you originally um, Hewlett-Packard, they have a vice president for disruption, you know? What does that mean? I mean, uh, if you read the old paper by Christensen, professor at MIT, I believe, or Harvard, um, where he invented disruptive technologies as a new term, he explicitly refers to Joseph Schumpeter with his creative destruction. But of course they couldn't call it destructive technologies. The, the connotations of that would be bad. So they called it disruptive. But what is it? It is destructive. It is meant to be destructive to the competitors. This is exactly what they want. How can you build a civilization on disruption? But this is the mindset of today's business community in America. This I find horrendously dangerous. Yes, because the technology itself is disruptive. Exactly. It's yeah, meant so it's, to be disruptive. Well, it, it just it does. Once it's there and yeah, it's, it grows exponentially, it, uh, it, it's result, yeah. the result is disruption. And so... The question is, how can we, because it, it is coming, it is there, we may or may not see it, but it's getting even worse as time goes by, it's because it's exponential growth, and so yeah, and, we need uh, to deal with it. We have to deal with one phenomenon which 
in the economics community, chiefly the business administration community, um, is seen as a blessing, and I see it as a danger. Namely, a strong premium for speed. The speedest is always winning. This is the philosophy. But then, uh, I've been doing biological cybernetics. From that time, I know that a system in which always the speediest process is winning is bound to self-destroy itself. And this is not what we want. So, I'm all in favor of a premium of ingenuity and of speed in invention, but the application level must be essentially governed by caution and not just by speed. Otherwise, the system, as Pope Francis says in his encyclical Laudato Si, is self-destroying. Absolutely, I couldn't agree more. So the question is, how can we influence that? How can we bring a moral aspect, an ethical aspect to this, which is exactly what you're Absolutely. saying. So Ethics are, in a sense, a means of slowing down to a level where it can really survive and not run away. Absolutely, especially if you look at nature. Absolutely, you know, if you yeah. ever watched a flower trying to bloom or grow or a seed trying to yeah. uh, break through the earth, it takes forever. So, but that's yeah. not how technology works. I couldn't agree yeah. more. Um, in biological systems theory, we have two expressions. One is negative feedback, and the other is positive feedback. And negative feedback is what makes us survive. And positive feedback is cancer. It's the, de the deadly uh, thing. I mean, the connotation of positive is nice, and the uh, connotation of negative is bad. Uncontrolled growth. But yeah. exactly the opposite is reality. We need negative feedbacks to growth, for instance. I mean, a child is supposed to grow, an adolescent a little bit still, but an adult should not grow any longer. It would be a disaster. So we need that uh, negative feedback. And it's not only the human uh, the gro uh, growth of the body, it's many, many other things. Uh, for instance, temperature regulation inside the body is no, full of negative feedbacks. And this is how we manage our body. That's fantastic. By positive feedback, the best and most striking example is cancer cells. They proliferate uh, like mad and eventually the, the body is dead, period. Killing its host. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, we need to learn about the blessings of negative feedbacks while at the same time fully honoring ingenuity and uh, inventions and all that, uh, I mean, no way to, against, I'm not an anti-technology person, not at all. I mean, our books, Factor 4 and Factor 5, are full of technological optimism. But then the idea is not totalitarian, but balanced. Yes, especially technology works when you live in a democratic society where yes. there are checks and balances to ensure that technology is not applied against 
you know, freedom and liberty and uh, human dignity. Well, once you give technology into the hands of uh, Hitler, for instance, or an autocratic regime, then uh, you have a different story. And so given the fact that technology is currently coming from a democratic part of the world, California mostly, uh, then, um, you know, we need to caution people of the application because not every um, usage of technology will be uh, within the context of democratic yeah. uh, liberty. What I found a bit frightening is that the philosophy of the so-called Singularity University in, I believe, Sunnyvale or somewhere in California, Mountain View, Mountain View could be, um, is we are chiefly concentrating on exponential technologies. You know? And they are absolutely, uh, well, what says this often? <laughs> they are uh, thrilled, at least, by this term, exponential technologies, and everything that is slower, why care? You know, this I find hubris. Yeah, well, we need to be careful, especially of the application thereof. Uh, there are benefits. Technology has always disrupted uh, human lives, you know, and we've known yeah. that forever, ever since the invention of the wheel. Uh, but now that through the doubling of innovation and the underlying computer technology, that's where the exponential growth comes in. And mm. uh, so we, I couldn't agree more that we need to be careful. So the Club of Rome just celebrated its 50th anniversary. If you were to summarize the impact that the Club of Rome has had thus far, what would that be? And moving forward, how do you see the Club of Rome continue to have an impact, a positive impact in the world? The Club of Rome in the late 1960s and early 1970s sort of owned a crystal ball. They knew that a limited planet Earth has limited resources and should live with the limits to growth. And that was a very strong message, very surprising to all economists. But then all of a sudden, people, politicians, began to realize that these guys were simply right. The then Austrian Chancellor Kreisky invited his cabinet to have a common session with the Club of Rome in order to get it into the political domain. Now, of course, this was not exactly popular with politicians like Maggie Thatcher or uh, Ronald Reagan or uh, Pinochet in Chile or so. Uh, To them, optimism uh, was becoming a patriotic duty for all their citizens, which uh, squarely contradicted the philosophy of the Club of Rome. But in the meantime, we are much beyond the relative primitive mathematics of the then model, so-called World 3 model, uh, of limits to growth. In the meantime, we are a lot more differentiated. One of the co-authors of the limits to growth, Professor Jürgen Randers from Norway, together with his Swedish friend, Johan Rockström, have written a book in which they study the compatibility between the United Nations 17 sustainable development goals and the planetary boundaries that Johann Rockström has formulated. 
and they find out that any business as usual strategy will destroy the earth. And uh, acceleration of that, even worse. But there are two options, one mild, one strong, by which we can still tame the dragon and find to a sustainable world, but not without rather radically changing the incentive structure in economics, <coughs> changing policies, and changing our thinking, meaning also a new enlightenment. The Club of Rome had another phase at the time of the fall of the Berlin Wall, um, the end of the uh, Cold War, which of course was absolutely exciting for everybody on, uh, on earth, uh, and then they wrote a book, a fabulous book, The First Global Revolution. And there they said, well, now we have lots of peace dividends because we don't need so much armaments any longer. And those billions and billions of peace dividends would be available for doing all the good things. The trouble is that after 1990, the new philosophy of um, neoliberalism took over and all the peace dividends went essentially into tax reductions, basically for companies and for the rich. So not, not much was left for what the World Bank then uh, had to, to deal with, with some improvements for developing countries. So the Club of Rome also, from time to time, has been, uh, well, pushed aside by reality. In the new book, Come on, we try to address the existing challenges, including digitization, disruptive technologies, of course, the war and peace questions, the new scarcity uh, problems, and the solutions. And that, I believe, is a more mature level of dealing with the problems created in an unsatiable world of unsatiable rich people and some poor. Um, so I believe uh, during those 50 years of existence of the Club of Rome, there was also some maturation and I believe the community of the Club of Rome, roughly a hundred persons, uh, can be quite proud of this uh, positive development. Beautiful. So, moving forward, what would be then the most treasured advice that you could give to our audience as to how to support the Club of Rome with its message in bringing it, implementing it basically, the, the messages of a think tank? There are two different dimensions. One is the primitive one. A think tank also needs some money. and. Uh, we need to have the best uh, spirits on board and we somehow have to pay them. And therefore, if somebody is willing to give us some constant money for doing our very ambitious job, what we can be pay back is sort of this crystal ball uh, to understand where potentially the dangers lie and that can be then avoided by clever investors.
And the other thing is, of course, communication between the investors community and the Club of Rome about a kind of re-regulation of financial markets in a way that does not discourage good investment. It only discourages destructive investment. And that in a way that can be defended uh, at the lawmakers, at the um, national uh, supreme courts, at international level in international negotiations, etc., all this has to be formulated well. For instance, if it becomes an agenda point for the G20, how exactly can we re-regulate the financial system? And then come the investors community together with the Club of Rome, saying, look, here is a point of caution, and here is a point of opportunity, etc., that could impress uh, the leader of China, the leader of the United States, the leaders of Europe, etc. And that uh, could be a great uh, kind of cooperation. Brilliant. So, how do you want to be remembered? Well, by my grandchildren as the nice uh, uh, old man and by my friends as the guy who never gave up <laughs> by a future generation as somebody who cared about future generations and was not so um, enchanted with the next five minutes of success, but of the next uh, five uh, decades of success, which I find a lot more important. And if uh, many other people in the club of Rome uh, think like that, I believe that could be a great lobby for a kind of sustainable long-termism that uh, our civilization needs. Wonderful. Thank you so much for being with us. Really appreciate <laughs> your impact in the world and good luck to you. Thank you. For more on Professor von Weizsäcker and the Club of Rome, visit clubofrome.org. To learn more about Dr. Bosazan and the investment turnaround, visit investment-turnaround.com.